Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. Today, we're going to be talking about Jesus' hour of darkness. So um, we're going to play the video, as we always do, to uh, bring us up to speed on the story, and then I'll come back out, and we'll talk about Jesus' hour of darkness. Jesus was celebrating the Passover at a meal with his disciples. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and wine from the table and said, This is my body. This is my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. After the meal, Jesus and his disciples went into a nearby garden to pray. The disciples fell asleep, but Jesus continued to pray emotionally, asking God for some way out of what was about to happen, but saying that it was ultimately up to God. Just as he finished, a large crowd with swords and clubs led by Jesus' disciple Judas came and arrested Jesus. Another one of his disciples, Peter, tried to defend Jesus. He took out his sword and cut off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. But Jesus told him to put away his sword and reached out and touched the man's ear and healed him. Jesus was led away beaten and spit on by those who arrested him, and he was taken to the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate told the crowd that he could find no real charges to bring against Jesus. But the crowd screamed out, crucify him, demanding that Jesus be executed. So Pilate handed Jesus over to be killed. When Judas saw that Jesus was going to be killed, he was filled with regret and sadness for betraying him. So he went back to the Jewish leaders, gave them their bribe money, and went out into a field and hanged himself. Jesus was crucified, nailed by his hands and feet to a wooden cross. Then, even though it was only noon, the sun stopped shining, and darkness came over the whole land. Hanging from the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone nearby then gave Jesus a drink by filling a sponge and lifting it up to Jesus on a long stick. After Jesus took a drink, he said, It is finished, and died. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. When the guards and the others around Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified, saying, Surely he was the Son of God. So let's open up our Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 27. That's where we're going to be this morning. And you can pull out the crosswalk notes that are inside your program. What I want to do is read in greater detail just the end portion of what we saw in the video a moment ago. And that's Matthew 27 beginning at verse 45. If you have a Bible, we always encourage you to bring a Bible to church. Uh, if you have a phone app, great, open it up. Let's take a look and see what it says here. Uh, in Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45. 
From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he, came, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. What a description of Jesus' darkest hour. Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you hear those words, you may begin to go back in your mind to, uh, to your own moments when you've had hours of darkness. I was doing a little bit of research about different ways that people go through dark times in their lives. And I came across a very interesting article about a new phenomenon that researchers are just now beginning to discover. And they're calling it the quarter-life crisis. And they call it that to distinguish it between what we, we often would call the midlife crisis that we're all very familiar with but this is something new that researchers are discovering, and they're, and they're finding that young people in their mid to late 20s and early 30s are undergoing a period of time where they experience great disappointment with their life. And that disappointment with their life brings insecurities, loneliness, and even depression. I thought this was so interesting because we have so many in this church who are in their mid to late 20s and early 30s and found myself wondering, I wonder how many of us in, in this church are undergoing that kind, of, that kind of crisis. And I wanna read to you about this. Bearing all the hallmarks of the midlife crisis, this phenomenon characterized by insecurities, disappointments, loneliness, and depression, as I just said, is hitting 20 and 30-somethings shortly after they enter the real world with educated professionals most likely to suffer. I found that really interesting. Educated professionals most likely to suffer. And I also found it interesting that people are experiencing this shortly after they perceive, hey, we're now in the real world. This, this is what adulthood is. It goes on and it says, quarter-life crises don't happen literally a quarter of the way through your life, said lead researcher Dr. Oliver Robinson from the University of Greenwich in London. They occur a quarter of your way through adulthood in the period between 25 and 35, although they cluster right around age 30. 
Robinson, who presented his findings at the British Psychological Society annual conference in Glasgow, worked with researchers on what he says is the first research to look at the quarter-life crisis from a solid, empirical, evidence-based angle on data rather than speculation. The research is backed up by a survey which found that 86% of the 1,100 young people surveyed admitted feeling under pressure to succeed in their relationships, in their finances, and in their jobs before hitting age 30. Two in five of these young people, 40%, were worried about money, saying they did not earn enough. 32% felt under pressure to marry and have children by the age of 30. And 6% were planning to leave the country entirely and emigrate, while 21% wanted a, a career change. Now, that's a lot of 20 and 30-somethings that are going through a dark period, an hour of darkness in their life, a, a crisis situation in their life. As I read through that, you might have noticed that the research for this is not being done in the United States. It's being done in London, and the research is being presented in Scotland, and in fact, another article that I read said, there is a myth that America has it much worse than other countries around the world when it comes to darkness and depression in people's lives. In fact, there's also a myth that says that people living simpler lives in third world countries don't have nearly the level of depression and anxiety and their own personal hours of darkness like we do here. And it is, researchers are finding, a complete myth. They have it at exactly the same rate that we do, and they experience their depression and their darkness, no matter whether it's a, a third world country or a first world country, around the world this is becoming more and more a common phenomenon. And that's why, plus based on my own experience, personal experience, and counseling many people, I'm going to issue um, a guarantee this morning. I can guarantee you that at some point in your life, it is highly, highly, highly likely that you're going to go through a personal crisis. You're going to hit a wall, and you're going to experience your own personal hour or hours of darkness, and you're going to be in those hours of darkness um, forced to, to step back and ask questions like, why and where is God and, and what is happening here? And today's message about Jesus going through his hours of darkness is one that is so beautiful for anyone who is either still preparing for their own hour of darkness or who has gone through an hour of darkness, and it is especially helpful for those of you seated out there today who may be right now experiencing an hour of darkness. And so I want to dive into what happened to Jesus, and, and I'm going to give you up front what I'm hoping that you will go home with today. We have talked a lot in this entire series, and it began last summer, and we've continued it this summer. Pastor Dan has mentioned it numerous times already. We've talked a lot about upper story and lower story. Do those terms sound familiar to you? 
And the lower story is the story that you and I are living. This is our experience of the world and how things are playing out. The upper story is that same story from God's perspective with God's purpose as the overall story of the entire world and all of its history is playing out to serve God's greater purpose in heaven. So if you want an illustration of this, just think of Joseph, for example. Joseph, in the lower story, went through a huge roller coaster ride. His brothers sold him down the river, uh, put him into slavery, and I'm sure there were many times in Joseph's personal lower story where he was shaking his, his head, maybe even shaking his fist, maybe worried and concerned as he got sold into slavery, falsely accused, imprisoned, all kinds of things happened to him, and then each time he would, by the power of God, bounce back into an even higher position than he, than he had had before. That was the lower story. I'm sure at times very confusing to Joseph. But we hear about the upper story at the very end of Joseph's life, when Joseph's brothers come and stand before Joseph, their father has just passed away and they are shaking in their boots because they think that Joseph now is going to finally take revenge for the fact that his brothers, they had started him on this horrible journey, this roller coaster ride, by his own brothers selling him into slavery at the beginning of the story. And so they're thinking, we're dead. Literally, we are dead now that our father is gone. And Joseph is able to do something that I hope to give to all of us today. He is able to draw down from the upper story and pull it into his lower story. And that is the skill that I hope that watching Jesus and how he goes through his hour of darkness will help us to see. Because it is Jesus and Jesus alone who gives us the ability to say that God's plan and God's promises are going to come true. Our guilt and our sin are going to be taken away. Often in the lower story, we feel guilty and ashamed of ourselves. We think that we are creating our own roller coaster ride, our own problems. And today we're going to learn that while that is true, our sins are forgiven. And the perfect sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross means that we are reconciled to God. And we need to be able to draw down from all God's plan of salvation and all God's purpose and working in this world into our lower story and use the upper story to find peace and joy even in the midst of our pain and suffering in the midst of our dark hours. Verse 45 starts this way. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And it might be tempting to think that Jesus' darkest hours were right here. In fact, in some ways, this was the darkest hour because Jesus is about to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll talk more about that in a minute. Jesus is going to go through the actual pains of separation from the Father. We can't imagine what that experience would be like for Jesus, a member of the Trinity who, who had always been perfectly one with the Father until this moment where he bears our sin on his shoulders. So in many ways, of course, this is Jesus' darkest moment. But go back in your mind through what we just heard in the video. 
is not just three hours of darkness. Jesus has been falsely accused of trying to mislead people throughout his ministry. And now all of this comes to culmination as the leaders of Israel come together with one of Jesus' closest followers. Let me ask you this. Have you ever at work or in your family felt betrayed by someone very, very close to you whom you trust more than anyone else? Think about Judas, whom Jesus had even entrusted with the treasury of the disciples. This this is someone that Jesus had fully invested in, fully trusted, and this man betrays him with a kiss. Then Jesus is arrested. He goes through not one trial in the middle of the night, but four different trials in the middle of the night as he's handed, first of all, over to Annas, the father of the current high priest, in the middle of the night, in the dark, at Annas' home. There he's tried. Then he's passed along to Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, the current high priest. He's tried before the entire Sanhedrin, again, completely illegally, not during the day, in Caiaphas' home, we're told in the Bible. From there then, he's taken over to Pilate. Pilate tries to shove him off on King Herod. That's the third trial. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. All throughout this, you have false accusers and liars coming to accuse Jesus of things that were not true. Have you ever had that happen to you? Maybe you can understand a little bit of Jesus' hour of darkness. If anyone has ever slandered you, told a lie about you, and, and as, as much as you wanted to refute that lie, you just stood quiet. Have any of you ever been in a situation where the person who was supposed to protect you, think Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who was supposed to be there for this very purpose, to step up and say, hey, you people are being crazy here. This is not right, it is not fair, and it is most of all not legal. I'm putting an end to this. Have you ever had someone whom you thought was there to defend you wash their hands and say, do with them what you want to do? You see, one after another, things were happening to Jesus that I think would have sent any of us into darkness. From being betrayed by a friend to being accused by lies of things that we have not done, to not being protected by someone that we thought was there to protect us. And all during this, Jesus is not only being emotionally assaulted and spiritually assaulted by these things, he's literally being physically assaulted, beaten, scourged. He stays up all night, and at the end of these four I guess you can call them trials. A cross is placed on his shoulders, a a crown of thorns on his head, and he is led out to Golgotha to be crucified. The punishment that was reserved for only the, the very worst criminals. 
And you, and you actually had to qualify on two counts. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. You could be executed, but it would be done in what they then considered a much more merciful way. They would lop your head off with a sword. At least it was quick. Crucifixion was agonizing and torturous. And if you were not a citizen of Rome, and Jesus was not, and if you were considered the most horrible of criminals, and Jesus' crime was claiming to be the king of the Jews, the crime was always posted above the head of the criminal. That's why Pilate said, put above his head in three languages, he's the king of the Jews. And so now Jesus is there. He's had nails driven through his hands. It's nine in the morning. And it's late spring, March, April. The sun rises, and in Jerusalem, it gets mighty warm that time of year. And Jesus, with his arms spread on the cross, and unable to breathe, because that's really the way you die with crucifixion, begins to bake in the sun until noon. And as we read, this is when everything goes truly dark. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. You see, even God's creation now is participating in what is happening with Jesus. And what's amazing to me is how Jesus responds on the cross. It shows the heart of our Savior. Research told me that the most common words that historians report as, as being spoken by someone who was crucified, anyone want to guess what the most common words were? They were curses. People hanging on a cross would hurl down curses at the people who were passing by or the soldiers who were standing underneath the cross. That was the most common thing spoken from someone crucified. And, and Jesus, he speaks seven times, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He looks at the criminal who confesses his sins and asks to be with him. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He looks at his mother and says, here is your new son, John. And he looks at John and he says, here's your new mother. Take care of her. Takes care of his mother from the cross. Then these words that we heard in the video, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which come at the end of this period, this three hours of darkness, and then that's followed with, I am thirsty, it is finished, and Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Seven times Jesus speaks of love, seven times Jesus in, in some way, uh, in, in these connects with his father until, of course, this one time where he says, you've left me. 
It's interesting to see what a prophet 700 years before all of this goes down has to say. Look at Isaiah 42, 16 that I I put in your crosswalk notes. See what it says? I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not Forsake them. You see, when Isaiah speaks these words, the whole nation of Israel was undergoing an hour of darkness. They had rebelled against God through practicing idolatry and worshiping other gods. They were not obeying God. And one of the things that we hear over and over again in in the prophets of this era, 700 years before Christ, is due to their idolatry, they were especially not being kind to and loving one another. They were being completely unjust to one another. In our confession today, we said, we don't keep God first in our lives, and we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. This was running rampant in Israel. And so... They were undergoing an hour of darkness. But yet, again, just like Jesus hanging on the cross, what what does God say to them? I will lead the blind. You're blind right now, but here's what I do with the blind. I lead them by ways they have not known along unfamiliar paths. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. And that promise is not just for Old Testament Israelites. That promise is for you. You are at times going to be led along unfamiliar paths. You're going to be led in ways that you have not known, but here is what God says. Draw down from the upper story during those times, during those hours of darkness, during those times of confusion. Know that God will guide you. That's his promise. Know that God will turn your current darkness into light Just as Jesus hanging on the cross did not heap on the darkness by by hurling down curses on everyone. How easy would it have been for Jesus from the cross as the holy son of God to look down and say, you are all sinners. I reject you. I condemn you. And guess what? Would he have not been perfectly in his rights to say words like that? As a holy God, looking down upon sinful people who had just nailed him to a cross, would he have not been perfectly in his rights to condemn the world and to curse the world? And yet, into the darkness, he does not bring more darkness. He brings light. Father, forgive them. Mother, here's your new son, even very personally. John, here's your new mother. So here's what I want you to to write down. And remember those last words. These are the things I will do, Isaiah says. I will not forsake them. Jesus does not forsake us even on the cross. So Jesus' hour of darkness 
will always become an eternity of light for us because as we're going through our own hour of darkness, we can rest in these promises of God and we can draw down on the upper story, find peace. Matthew goes on to report what happens on the cross. About three in the afternoon, now this is three hours of darkness in, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isn't it interesting that even the Son of God asks the questions that we sometimes ask when we're going through an hour of darkness? Would you underline the word why? And then would you also underline the word forsaken? Now, he is still... Calling God what? My God. In this hour of darkness, he is still calling the Father my God. But he is also at the very same time saying, why? Why is this happening? Now, you remember already in the Garden of Gethsemane what Jesus had prayed. God, is there any other way? Have any of you ever had thoughts like that when you are going through your hour of darkness? God, there must be some other way. Can you please take this cup of suffering from me? Very often when we look for light to shine in our darkness, our very first thought is there must be some other way. Do I really have to drink this cup of suffering that God is handing to me? And and we pray the words as Jesus did, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done, but we struggle getting those words out because we so want our will to be done. And we ask, why? What are you doing, God? God? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? It is so painful, so agonizing, so dark, and so depressing. Have you left me? Have you abandoned me, forsaken me? Now, in Jesus' case, and this is something we need to understand clearly. I I said it quickly a few moments ago, but I want to say it very clearly. This is not just Jesus feeling as if he were forsaken. This is Jesus being forsaken. The Father has abandoned him. And why? Because he is now bearing your sins and mine on his shoulders. And for a time now, Jesus experiences what everyone else will experience when they enter hell, if they don't believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to be completely separated from God, which again, as I said earlier, for a member of the Trinity to experience being separated from the Father with whom he is one for eternity, we can't even understand how that can happen. It's a total mystery. He is being separated and he is undergoing the pains of hell for us as our substitute in our place. 
He is bearing our sins. He is undergoing the condemnation and the separation from God and all God's blessings that you and I deserve. That's what he's doing on the cross, and that is why he becomes the perfect lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. He is experiencing not only physical death, but spiritual and eternal death for us. Why have you forsaken me? Flip the page. Remember, Isaiah's writing 700 years before all of this happens. And there was a time when God in the Old Testament is readying himself to turn his back on Israel too because they won't turn it around. They won't repent. They won't come back to God. They're continuing down their path of idolatry and injustice and hatred of their neighbor. And this is what God says to them. Although you have been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. And then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Why did Jesus undergo? What's the most practical reason for you and me that Jesus underwent that rejection by the Father? Because our sins were separating us from God. We would have been the ones eternally rejected by the Father. Jesus did this to reconcile us to the Father, to bring us back into a right relationship, to allow us to say, by God, we are no longer rejected. We are fully accepted. I don't know how many of you had this experience. When I was in grade school, almost every year, I changed schools. Anybody in here change schools that frequently? If you, if you have not changed schools that frequently, you might not get what I'm saying because you make friends and you're able to keep your friends for three, four, five, six years and you just kind of say, but when you, when you change schools frequently, you're always in this weird zone where you, you don't know who your friends are. You don't know if you're accepted. You don't know if you're rejected. You, and every time, so, so you start the new school in the fall, it takes until almost Christmas until you figure out what group you fit in with and who are going to be your next set of friends. And then by Easter, your parents are saying, hey, we're moving again. And early summer, you move, you go through the summer, you don't really have any friends and, unless there happens to be a neighbor kid. And then in fall, it starts all over again. You get what it feels like to not understand where you fit in. Now, some of you are in that right now, not because you're school age or because you've recently moved, but, but maybe someone at work or in your home has betrayed you, not stepped up to, to defend you when you felt they should, and you feel alone, you feel rejected. But drawing down from the upper story into your situation, if that's what's creating your hour of darkness is that you do not feel the acceptance that you, that you yearn for, is to always remember the most important one does accept me. And his name is God. And as long as I have God's acceptance, as long as I know that I am a dearly loved child of God bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, then the acceptance of others will be a nice thing. 
It will be a wonderful thing, but it will always be relegated to the realm of an add-on. Because the most important acceptance I already have, the acceptance of my heavenly Father. Some of you have gone through this with parents. You feel like your mom and dad never accepted you. Some of, this have, uh, some of you have gone through this with your place of work. My boss, my coworkers have never accepted me. Some of you are going through this with your immediate family. I don't think my spouse accepts me anymore. My children have rejected me. Here's the message. Here's how you draw down from the upper story into your lower story. This is all true, and it is all painful. It is painful. I'm not going to lie about that. But in the midst of this rejection, the fact that Jesus died for you on the cross means that you are accepted by the one most important person you must be accepted by, and that is God himself. Once you have that, you can begin to build the acceptance of others. You know, after last night's message, and I want to say this so I don't forget, I had someone come up to me on the patio and said something real important, and it it made me think, "I I need to put this out this morning. In your lower story, you are going to experience pain. Drawing down from the upper story does not mean that the pain of the lower story automatically comes to a screeching halt. It simply means that in the midst of this pain of living through your lower story, there is a deeper peace, there is a deeper joy, a deeper calm that you can tap into even as you undergo the pain and the worry and the doubt and the rejection that you're experiencing in your lower story. You see, Joseph, I'm convinced, in his lower story, went through a lot of emotions. Now, they're not all reported in the Old Testament, but he was able to draw down from the upper story. The point I'm making is, don't expect that just because you develop the skill of drawing down from the upper story, that all the pain of the lower story that you're living is going to automatically evaporate. If you feel rejected, it's still painful. But go to God who accepts you and understand he does accept you. Verses 50 and 51, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So we've just heard Jesus' hour of darkest rejection becomes an eternity of acceptance for me. Jesus' hour of darkness, darkest rejection becomes an eternity of acceptance for me. And now look at this. It's more than acceptance. It's total reconciliation. The curtain of the temple was a sign to say, we're separated from God. This was a curtain that stood in front of the most holy place in the temple. There was only one person, one human being in Israel who was allowed to go behind that curtain, and that was the high priest, and he was only allowed to go there once per year. The people would, the the other priests would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle so that if he died in there, they knew they couldn't go in to retrieve the body. They could pull his body out. You were not allowed in there. It was a symbol that this is where God resides. In previous times, it's where the Ark of the Covenant had resided. Of course, in the Babylonian captivity, we don't know. You've all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know we can't find the Ark of the Covenant. 
So in Jesus' day, the room was empty. And still the high priest would go in there once per year and sprinkle blood around as a sign to say, the blood of the Lamb of God will cleanse us from our sins and heal our separation. When Jesus dies and that curtain splits in two that divides the, the most holy place from the holy place, this is a huge sign from God. There's no longer any separation between you and me. You now have the right to walk right in to the holy place. And you'll notice from reading the story that all kinds of other weird things happen, things that you'd expect to only happen at the end of the world, earthquakes and dead people coming out of their graves. But they're all there given by God to indicate that we who were once separated from God have now been brought fully back together. We are reconciled. You know how powerful that word reconciliation is, don't you? You know how powerful it is if you've ever gone through a huge fight with someone that you love. Huge fight. Where you weren't able to talk to one another. Where you felt completely angry with one another. And then you worked it out and you said, let's get back together. When I was six years old, my mom left my dad and my dad and I stayed together for a number of months. This got my uncle, who lived nearby us, so angry with my dad that not only did my mom not talk to my dad, but my uncle, whom I just thought was the greatest, also wasn't talking to my dad. And I remember to this day that, that huge separation that existed. My mom literally moved from Louisiana, where we were living, back here to Phoenix. There was a physical distance for four or five months between me and my dad and my mom and my little sister. And there was a very palpable emotional distance between my dad and my uncle. Until, and even in my little six-year-old mind, I could, I could sense this until my, my dad and my uncle finally talked it out and my uncle convinced my dad that he had to come here and go back after my mom and they needed to reconcile. And I remember the day that we drove, as a six-year-old, the day that we drove into Phoenix and my mom and dad started to work things out again. That feeling of reconciliation. That is what we have with God. We are no longer separated from God, but we are reconciled to him. So Jesus' hour of darkest separation becomes an eternity of reconciliation for me. And then verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. This centurion standing there, he has his eyes opened. He sees, remember, this centurion was very likely one of those guys gambling for Jesus' clothes some hours earlier, completely convinced that he was just a common criminal, and hey, here's some extra clothes that I can have. This centurion is very likely one of those guys forcing Jesus to carry his own cross to Golgotha. This guy may have been one of the people who had a little further uh, in, in the past been beating on Jesus, 
weaving that crown of thorns for Jesus. Now, we don't know that for sure, but we definitely know that these were the guys that were mocking, jeering, laughing at Jesus only a few short hours earlier, and now we see a total change. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Isaiah had foretold this too. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Here's what I want you to write down. Jesus' hour of darkest defeat becomes an eternity of victorious insight for me. Our prayer at Crosswalk is that when you hear the story of Jesus' crucifixion, Just like the centurion, it gives you a whole new look at life and a whole new lease on life. When you hear Jesus say, it is finished, our prayer for you is that you take that in and you say, I'm just beginning. And the reason I'm just beginning is because Jesus finished everything needed for me to have my sins forgiven, my guilt taken away, my history be truly put in the past, and now I can move forward with God in a new way. I hope that when you hear Jesus say, it is finished, that that you think to yourself, God has given me a way to see into the upper story. And all that God wanted to accomplish is right here. This is, the, this is the pivot point of the history of the entire world. Jesus becoming that perfect lamb of God. And you say to yourself, man, I can draw down on that and find peace and hope even when I'm in pain. That's our dream for you. Take a look at this Verse again, Isaiah 29, 18. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. And always remember this. What appears to be darkness and death in the lower story is actually light and life in the upper story. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus for us. And because he is the perfect lamb of God sacrificed for our sins, we no longer have to suffer from guilt and condemnation and separation from you. We no longer have to go through our hours of darkness as people who have no hope or no light in the situation. We no longer have to suspect that that light At the end of the tunnel is a train that you've sent to run us over because you are so angry with us. All of those thoughts can be banished because your son Jesus dying on the cross means peace between us, reconciliation between us, sins forgiven, and new light and new hope in our lives. Lord, My most important prayer today is that you will help all of us remember during those painful hours of darkness in our life that we can develop this skill of drawing down from your greater purpose and your greater love that you tell about in this upper story and bring that down into our lower story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to crosswalkphoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. You know, it's so easy at times for us to allow our lore stories to be driven and led along by the guilt and the shame and the fear that we feel because we know our own sins best. And we know how weak and challenged we are to try to live the way God wants us to live. And we know that we often fall. But today's message is one that says you have freedom from your guilt and your shame and your sin. Freedom bought by that perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And my prayer for all of you is that you draw down on that freedom and live in the light of Jesus' glorious sacrifice for your sins. No more guilt, no more shame, no more fear, and best of all, no more condemnation. Let me send you out with the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a great week in the Lord. I'll be out on the patio. If you want to be prayed with this morning, just stay in your seats. Hey, greet someone for whom Jesus died on your way out.